Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. I mean, goal number one for me was to be entertaining and my publisher basically like made me put all the tips and stuff in there, which like in retrospect, I'm happy about, but I just, you know, there's been enough books written by people telling you what to do and A, people don't want to be talked down to and B, like, I don't fully believe in design rules anyway, so I don't want to spend an entire book telling other people these made up rules about like what they can do in their house. Hi everyone, I'm Amy. And I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. Today we're talking to interior designer Orlando Soria. He grew up in Yosemite National Park and then headed east for higher learning. He got a professional turbo boost when he landed a role on an HGTV show. Now he's an author and social media influencer with lots of projects in the works. So let's talk to Orlando. I am Orlando Soria. I live in sunny and bright Los Angeles, California, and I do interior design, book writing, blogging, social media, and just content generation in general. And I do that because I guess I have a strong desire to communicate. Okay. So going back to the beginning, young Orlando, I'm pretty sure you grew up in, in Yosemite. Is that right? Yes. I grew up in Yosemite National Park. This is so cool. In North America. I've never met anybody who's grown up in a national park. So first of all, I want to hear about that. And then I also want to hear what your family was like. It was crazy. So like basically where I grew up, Yosemite has about 800 to 1200 people who live there year round. It's a very small community, mostly people who work for the National Park Service or who work for the concessionaire who runs all the hotels and restaurants and whatnot in the park. My father was the dentist in the park. So we worked at the medical clinic there. And my mom was the basically like the principal of the little grammar school there. So it was was a crazy place to grow up. I had a lot of time sort of alone in isolation because of growing up there. It's very small, as you can imagine. And I think that that played a huge role in 
my creativity and just sort of like me eventually like studying art and always sort of like making things or even designing rooms within our house because I just had so much time to myself to play and sort of explore creatively. Did you have any sense of like appreciation for the the natural surroundings of where you grew up? It's clearly a very beautiful place and you can tell that even when you're like a kid, but I don't think that like anybody really appreciates where they grow up until they leave Mm -hmm. and come back. So it wasn't really until I like went off to college and was able to have some space from it that I realized like what an insane and incredible place it was. Like my bedroom growing up looked out onto Yosemite Falls the falls would literally like rattle the window panes in the spring when they were really big. So it was like a one of a kind experience, Mm -hmm. like completely unique and really special that I didn't appreciate until I was in a more sort of like ordinary place. Mm -hmm. Did you have siblings and what did you spend your days doing? So yeah, I have two older siblings. I'm the youngest of three. And my mom was like either a teacher or a principal the whole time I was going to that school. So we'd go check in with my mom or like one of our parents and tell them where we were going, like me and my friends. There was about 14 kids that were my age. And we would just basically like be allowed to go anywhere we wanted throughout the forest that was like behind my little neighborhood and like make forts and just sort of like play around. Like, I don't really know what little kids do when they're playing, but we were just like playing house in the woods, I guess. (laughs) Sounds pretty cool, actually. It was crazy. Kind of feel like I was raised in like a different time period, almost like I was like raised in the 1920s or something, because I grew up in a community where like nobody locked their doors, where like everybody knew everything about everybody else, both in good ways and in bad. And, you know... Then I ended up just spending the rest of my life in giant cities. So it was, you know, a nice, a nice way to grow up for sure. Did you feel isolated at all or separate from pop culture? I'm sure you had access to it through all the, you know, traditional means, radio, TV, news. That's a good question. So basically, like my parents made sure that we like went everywhere. Like we would go to San Francisco quite often, like once a month or so. And then, you know, my mom always had like season tickets to the ballet or she would take us to SF MoMA so we like always knew what was going on in cities and in sort of like urban culture also like we got the internet when I was like 11 or 12 so and I also was like this is like the time period where like borders books and music was like a big thing like whenever we would go into town I would like look at all the like magazine sections like I loved like flaunt magazine and like there was another magazine called the face that I was obsessed with I was basically like obsessed with like magazine culture actually but I don't think I ever really like felt you feel like isolated from like shopping which seems important when you're like a kid and then you grow up and you're like that's stupid (laughs) it does seem important when you're a kid though because we're also like learning to use consumerism to express ourselves and to use our dollars to form our self-image it's like it's a very formative time in which shopping weirdly feels like an expressive media yeah totally so like our way of like rebelling was was kind of like not being into like living in Yosemite which would be like I'm gonna like live in a city when I grow up and now that I like live in a city I'm like ugh, I wish I lived in the country again (laughs) so yeah I definitely think I had that sense of like feeling cut off from things a little bit did that lead to any sort of I don't know Sometimes when you feel like you're constricted or in a space smaller and you can feel the ceiling, that leads to a certain kind of rebellion or acting out. Did you feel any of that or did you just feel like I can't wait to get to the big city? And and I'm kind of talking about the teenage years when you're when you've got your eyes on the next chapter of your life and you're trying to figure out where you're going to go and what you're going to do. What did that look like? I mean, my way of rebelling was like that I went to like a private school for college instead of going to public school because I'm from like a very like family that's very into like public education and very strongly behind that. So my thing was like, I had to go to this horrible high school. I'm going to like a fancy private college. But I wasn't really like a rebellious teenager. I guess my, my form of rebellion was just like 
at the time, like not being into where we lived. Like I was like reading the Andy Warhol diaries while I was like in my bedroom that overlooked Yosemite Falls. Yeah. So I wasn't very much like into the outdoorsy stuff. I was into like imagining what my life would be when I moved to like New York City. <laughs> and was your creativity primarily invested in magazine culture at the time? Or how were you expressing your creativity as a teenager? I always made art. My mom was really big into that. She was my teacher multiple times, like throughout my time at the Yosemite school. And we always went to museums and stuff. So I would make paintings. I drew a lot. I was always making something like I did like these incredible, basically like zines when I was little that were made out of like photographs from different magazines. I loved drawing like dresses when I was little. So I was always doing or making some sort of thing. Okay, that sounds like a good way to spend spend your teenage years while you're you're dreaming of the future. Yeah, I mean, I miss that kind of time that, you know, we're so like distracted by digital information now that I don't spend a lot of time I think there's going to be like a resurgence in like I mean, there is definitely in just like crafting and doing it as something to do with friends and doing it on your own because that is such like meditative time that I don't spend anymore. I used to spend a ton of time daydreaming and no one ever gave it any credit. In fact, I was called out for, for dawdling or not getting anything done. But I feel like daydreaming was such a rich, important time in my life. I, and I wish I just time blocked out some time for daydreaming. Yeah, there is no time for that. I used to have when I got to high school, our high school was two hours away. So I would have two hours each way on the bus every day to just think about nothing. <gasps> and I like strangely miss that time. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds um, amazing. It was like just staring out the window and, you know, mentally preparing for the day or like after school, like processing the day. It's something that like makes me kind of envy people who have like long commutes where they don't have to drive. Like if you're going into like Connecticut or something out of New York or something. Yeah. So you mentioned going to a fancy private school for college and studying art. Why don't you walk us through what the mind-expanding, identity-defining college years were like for you? Like, where did you move to? What did you study? What happened? How did Orlando start to blossom? So I moved to upstate New York to go to school at Cornell, and that was like a really magical experience. That school is essentially like a sleepaway camp. It's, you know, in a small town, and it's... I was in a major that was pretty small, so I, like, knew all of my professors and went to their houses for dinners and stuff like that. So it was the exact college experience that I wanted. And it felt like the first time in my life that I truly met, like, you know, kindred spirits that I'm still friends with. I'm thankful for that time. Did that sort of cement your path in the arts as well? No, I mean, I feel like weirdly, like I've always been a very ambitious, hardworking person who lacked a strong sense of exactly what I wanted to do. I used art to get into college, but I was a dual degree with fine arts and government. And I thought I wanted to go to law school until senior year where I was like, wait, I don't think I want to be surrounded by these people for the rest of my life. And these people being like all the people that I was in, like all these student organizations and like serving on student government with. So I had kind of this like aha moment that I thought I wanted to be an art professor because I loved all of my art professors so much. And then I ended up going to grad school for art and hating grad school so much that I was like, I don't want to be in academia <gasps> ever again. Why was grad school so bad? Grad school was bad because I was at a program that I think was going through a horrible phase, and I have no idea if it's better now, but the professors were very overwrought with work. They were very disengaged. They did not want to be there. They really resented the students. It was just like for everybody going through the motions and not truly being mm. the sort of intellectual idealistic place that I had come to expect a school would be from my undergrad experience. Yeah. Oh, that's so disappointing. Yeah. It ruined academia for me, for sure. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that, but I mean, on some level, there's always, there's always something to draw from these contrasting experiences, right? I mean, mm -hmm. 
how did that inform your like your next few steps after grad school? Well, I mean, everything has been kind of a little bit of a like meandering path. Mm-hmm. Grad school, like, you know, I met wonderful people and you know, something that has sort of helped me throughout my life is that I've always somehow managed to find myself surrounded by like really funny, intelligent people and learned a lot from them. So grad school taught me something that I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, It also gave me time to, you know, explore things that I probably wouldn't have had time to explore otherwise. My career path has been so strange and it started with (laughs) even the way that I was educated that I have like a set of like tools and understanding that could only have come from the path that I chose and the education that I have and the different types of jobs that I've taken that you never could have like in high school been like, oh, if this is what you want to do when you grow up, do those things. But they all do perfectly sort of relate to what I've ended up doing. I kind of feel like that too. you didn't know like that the internet was basically like an online magazine. It wasn't like a dynamic thing. It also wasn't something that lived in your phone. There weren't people who could make money by posting pictures from their phone. (laughs) So like all of these things that are now like industries like Instagram and blogging, you, you know, even podcasting getting down to what we're doing right now, like weren't things that were even things that we imagined. So how could we have imagined what to study? Right. I think like our generation of like bloggers and content creators 30 years ago would have all worked for magazines, but magazines don't make money anymore. So like, I remember like when I got out of undergrad, I actually wanted to take a job at a magazine and I couldn't afford to do it. Just was like for trust fund kids. I think it was like $17,000 a year or something ridiculous. So what did you end up doing right out of school? I went to New York and did PR for indie music for Sufjan Stevens and other bands like that. Oh, cool. So that was like the perfect thing to do, like just moving to New York because it was like, I got to go to all these like random like indie shows and meet all these musicians and deal with all this press. So it was like a really fun job. And I'm happy that I did it, even though it's like completely random. (laughs) How long did you do it for? I did that for a year. And then I went to grad school to get an MFA. What are you studying to get your MFA? Are you doing painting? Are you doing sculpture? Are you trying out everything and trying to figure out what you want to do? I went in with painting and I had always been doing these like photo based sort of portraits. So I continued doing that. I also got a degree in graphic design while I was there. So I was con- like contiguously studying graphic design. And then you also do take some academic classes. So I took some like feminist and queer theory and Africana classes at the same time. Ooh, fun. Okay. So Orlando, you got an MFA in painting. Then what do you do? Then I moved to California was like ready to be done with the East Coast and moved to LA where I worked as a graphic designer for a stationary company for a year. But this was like right during the economic downturn, Mm. the Great Recession. So I lost my job after the first year and sort of like looked around and was like, is that even what I wanted to do in the first place? Mm -hmm. Because I was in LA thinking like, oh, I'd like to do something in entertainment. So I started taking all of these art department jobs. So everything from like being a production designer to just like being an art department PA on anything from music videos to, you know, short indie feature films to like full length feature films. So I just did a lot of different basically set design for the entertainment industry for about four years. Oh, okay. And then from what I understand, you met Emily Henderson and that's kind of where things took a little bit of a turn. Yeah, exactly. So basically like I was doing all this production design stuff and I applied for a job that ended up being to be Emily's assistant on her TV show that she won when she won design star. And that job completely changed my career. And that was HGTV, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was her TV show, Secrets from a Stylist. Okay, so how long did you do that for? 
we did that for two seasons and right after that we just started like doing design clients and I continued working for her until I just like went off and worked on my own and it was during that time that you started to do more social media on your own and launch your blog and all that stuff yeah exactly I think I launched the blog when like after we finished the show but it before it had started airing okay so between TV and then being an influencer and eventually writing a book, media is obviously a really big part of what you do. So can you kind of talk a little bit more about the journey of being an influencer and how you got from like just having a blog to all of this social media and your book and where we are now? Yeah, I mean, it's been different for everything. Like, and it kind of like all these different platforms kind of undulate a little bit and are interrelated. Like my blog has had has had ups and downs since it started. So it goes through periods where I'm writing on it a lot and it's very popular to periods like right now where I'm too busy to write on it and it's kind of quiet. With Instagram, I just basically like was an early adopter. I started using it pretty soon after it came out. And, you know, because I was doing that job with Home Polish for a long time where I was doing a lot of celebrity projects, I grew my following that way. Okay. And then at some point you got a book deal. Yes. So then I sort of got approached by a few different book publishers and I chose the one that I thought would let me do what I wanted to do, which is Prestel, who published my book. What what did you want to do? What What is it that you wanted to do that you wanted to make sure you worked with the right? I publishing? wanted to write a an interior design book that people actually would take the time to read because I have had so many people in my life write interior design books that I didn't care to read because they were boring. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's because those people themselves are boring. I think it's because when you work with certain publishers, they push you in a direction to do what they think is going to be a book that sells the most to the largest market. Mm-hmm. But what ends up happening is they turn into these like pretty coffee table books that you just kind of leaf through, but are too dull to engage with. So I wanted to have a design book that people read cover to cover. Kind of my like inspiration was Amy Sedaris's crazy home books Mm -hmm. and actually have it be filled with tips and ideas that you would want in your house. It's actually really, really funny. What I like about your style is you're irreverent and you're comedic, but you are realistic and you share a lot of yourself in the book, but also a lot of really good tips. So it's really helpful, but you're like laughing through it at the same time. So it's really great. Yeah, I mean, goal number one for me was to be entertaining. And my publisher basically like made me put all the tips and stuff in there, which like in retrospect, I'm happy about. But I just, you know, there's been enough books written by people telling you what to do. And A, people don't want to be talked down to. And B, like, I don't fully believe in design rules anyway. So I don't want to spend an entire book telling other people these made up rules about like what they can do in their house. Right. Like, I think there are obviously like theories and and tips that are helpful. And I think people, especially not design minded people, need that and want that. But I'd much rather like use design as a way to communicate with people about their lives and also use it as a way to encourage people to take care of themselves and take care of everybody else Mm -hmm. that might come into their home. How did you find the process of pulling a book together and writing it? Is it something you'd like to do again? Is it something that you you're proud of and you found fulfilling? Was it a a slog at times or um, I hated it. Really? <laughs> like everybody says that like having written a book is very satisfying, but writing a book sucks. And like, that's generally, I think, true. Everybody please buy it. It's called Get It Together, by the way. My book was super budget. If you look at it, I think it looks like it was an expensive book like to make, but it was done like on a shoestring budget. And that was because basically like my photographer and I were like schlepping stuff all over the place to get all these photos made. I was talking to another influencer who I love, who did Brittany Jepson Watson, who does house that Lars built. 
mm-hmm. and we were talking about like how our how our books were made and <laughs> she was like oh my god I can't believe you did your book like that that sounds crazy <laughs> but just the photo shoots themselves were like one whole job that took about six months to do and then the writing itself was like challenging but it wasn't the physical just sort of exhaustion of like waking up at like four and going to sleep at like 1 a.m for days on end and lifting bags and bags of props and stuff in and out of my car to drive to like whatever crazy location so it didn't have the same sort of sense of like oh my god this is like so tiring that I don't ever want to do anything like this ever again well one of the things I'm curious about with your book is how how did you feel about having somebody else edit your words because you have a pretty specific voice and people kind of know you for that and it did come through but I'm just wondering like did you have any issues with like things having to be removed or edited well, honestly, like the the issue that I had was that I was worried that they like weren't editing me enough. Like I was like, are people going to get this? They really kind of let me do whatever I wanted with this book, which aside from like including some things that I didn't necessarily want to include chapter wise and directing the overall structure, maybe in a way that I would have done slightly differently. Like they basically like wanted the book to have as much character and voice as possible. So there wasn't really ever any creative difference on, I mean, to be honest, there wasn't a lot of creative difference in general. There were things that like, by the time the book was done, I didn't want them in the book anymore, but we had to include. But other than that, like it was a pretty like easy process. The hard thing is just like you sell a book proposal and you don't really realize that you're going to be held to task to do every single thing that is listed in it. So by the time I like got to writing certain aspects of it, I was like, I don't know what I have to write about this. So it was a lot of like Mm. discovery and you know, like it's, I can't imagine writing like one of my next goals in life is to actually write like my own either like, fiction or nonfiction book, Yay. just like not, not a photo oriented book. I was going to ask like, you about that. I can't imagine how difficult that is. Cause just like, it's so much easier for me to like write from photos than it would be to be like, all right, there's nothing to go from. And you have to like create this. Like mm-hmm. I, that's such a special skill, I think. And I'm curious if I could do something like that. I want to read just a a couple little things from your book, just so people get a flavor for what we're talking about here, because we really haven't discussed like your tone. So for example, there's a chapter called selecting a rug that's not a huge bitch. And (laughs) (laughs) and it says underneath there, you need a goddamn rug. Get off your lazy ass and get to the stupid rug store and buy a rug. Also, the gem of if your kids are brats, it's probably your fault for not making their rooms cute enough. Children are fucking awful. I know because I was one. <laughs> Seriously, are they demons? I mean, it's fantastic. I, I, I think it's really funny. But I, I agree with you that like it is as someone who has blog with where we write from pictures, it's so much easier to have a reference to start from. Yeah, I mean, the book, I thank you for reading those little excerpts from it because they do make me giggle like the funny thing is that I like haven't read it in so long and I like had to look at it recently because I was like doing a book signing in Atlanta and I was like oh my god this book is really funny and I don't mean that in like an egocentric way I mean it in a way where I'm like lots of energy went into this book people you should buy it like not only me but like the publisher and like the incredible book designer who put it all together. And obviously Zeke, who's the photographer who did these like incredibly luscious photos. Yeah. It's the only book I got in the mail where I actually opened it up and started reading it aloud to my husband. I was like, wait, you got to hear this one. And then I was like reading him. (laughs) Yeah, that was my goal. And so I'm happy. I didn't want to just create a book that people would be like, oh, the photos were so beautiful because that's literally what I've said to every single person, basically, that's like ever sent me a book like this is I'm like, oh, wow, it was so pretty. But like, I wasn't enticed to like read it. And the thing that I tried to do with it is to get people into it by doing a lot of subheaders that were just completely ridiculous. So like, you'll see that the name of the chapter is ridiculous. And then there's a subhead under it. That's like equally ridiculous. So you're like, wait, that's so weird. I want to read what that paragraph says. Cause the header I mean, of my it is favorite like, is like millennials are dicks. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? I have to read this paragraph now. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I want to know a little bit more about your business now. 
you are an interior designer. Are you doing that mm. as a practice or is it more in the influencer book author category? Like what's your day to day like? What how many people are in your studio? Is it just you? And what are the categories of work that you're doing and what does it look like? So you guys are actually catching me at like a really interesting time where things are very much in flux and I feel like it can be like a learning moment for everybody because I'm very much feeling not an expert at the organizational slash business side of my life right now. So basically like I went from having a full-time job where I was essentially like a social media marketer for an interior design startup. This was last year while I was writing the book to having to figure out how to support myself you know, after having received like a pretty decent salary from my previous job through my skills, which were interior design and social media marketing. So over the last year, things have changed drastically because my first initial instinct was like, oh, no, I have to like take on a lot of clients to pay for my life. And as the last year progressed, I realized like working with clients is not making me happy it's a lot of minutia. It's not making me very much money. And if you're a designer listening to this, I'm sure you know how insanely difficult it is to get the ratio of earnings to time spent on a project to a comfortable place as an interior designer or any kind of designer, graphic designer, what have you, because it's just like client work is time consuming. It's handholding and it's psychology. So my New Year's resolution this year was to stop working with interior design clients unless there were influencer clients or clients that were for press. So right now I only have one client. It's Gus Kenworthy. He's an Olympic skier influencer. And my strategy with that is that A, he's a friend and B, hopefully I can use the project to A, be a great portfolio piece and B, create some really fun content out of. So we're doing a web series out of it. I'm hoping to get it you know, published because it's a really beautiful project. But I've kind of started to shy away from doing private clients just because my personality is not pushy enough and I am not business savvy enough to make money on those types of projects. I was basically bleeding money on them. I had a assistant who was helping me until about six months ago. She left because she wanted to do her own ceramics work. She was an artist. And when she left, I kind of decided to try and keep my business small enough that I didn't need any help. And right now, what I'm realizing is that I'm growing in such a rate that I don't have the capacity to take care of everything. And I'm now looking to bring somebody else on again. So I think it's very hard as a small business owner to know when it's time to hire people, when it's smart to spend that money. And it's definitely something that's been a huge question mark for me. And there's not always a super easy answer, but I basically like am in a little bit of like a growing pains situation right now where I have all these amazing opportunities coming to me. I'm shooting a pilot for a TV show. I'm doing like all these different like web series and content series with different sponsors, but I have a few too many balls in the air and I'm pretty overwhelmed. Well, is that an exciting challenge that you're feeling with the growing pains or are you thinking that you might want to get even more strategic about the types of projects you take on? I mean, that's a good question. I think that when you're coming from a place of like, oh my God, I'm just trying to survive. I'm trying to make enough money to pay my bills that you don't think, you don't think that way. You don't think like, oh, like, should I be vetting these? You know, it's also like hard to know what the type of work that we do. Sometimes you do something and you're like, oh, this sounds like a perfectly great opportunity in terms of like, this is a sponsored Instagram blog post, whatever package, and then you do it and you're like, oh, I would never do that for that much money ever again, because it ended up being so much work that if you broke it down into an hourly, it would be like a ridiculously like pitiful <laughs> hourly rate. Yeah, it's a lot of guesswork. <laughs> it's a learning curve with everything. So and, and everything is kind of a new experience. That being said, like what a huge privilege to be able to be making money off of my creativity and solely my creativity. So I'm not going to complain about it, but I am going to, you know, try to do my best to get it to a manageable level of 
just of work and of at a level where I can actually do things on time and not be disappointing people by missing deadlines. Sure. And it, it sounds like you also need a little time for you to enjoy yourself as well. <laughs> it's hard to enjoy yourself yeah. when you're overwhelmed all the time. Yeah, it's definitely like not a good feeling, but you know, I think that you, you also like a lot of creative people struggle from this. And this is definitely like something that I struggle with is like, I have so many different things that I want to do. So just trying to figure out how to like meet all your goals and do all these different exciting things while not spreading yourself too thin, I think is a difficult balance to find. For sure. Can you walk us through your creative process? Let's, I mean, you do so many different types of projects. So just for the sake of getting like a nice picture painted for us, why don't we try an interior design project? Like, how does it get started? Where do you sort of gather and collect your inspiration and and how you distill out the ideas and then put them into practice? Yeah, I mean, so like design is so my goal with my clients is to like create a space where their friends will walk in and be like, oh, my God, you did such a good job with this place. Like this looks just like you. Like I don't want it to look designery. That's not my thing. I just want it to look like a space that is really elegant, that's been naturally collected over time. So a lot of the initial process is about interviewing the client and figuring out what their style is, what they like to do, the places that they like to go, and sort of like showing them a lot of images, seeing how they respond to them. And then from there, after that sort of like initial research portion, normally what I'll do is create like a general mood board that sort of reflects the vibe of what I want to do in any given space. And this could be, you know, for the whole home, this could be room by room. After that, we go into like, literally like, here is a layout for the space, including like furniture to scale and what we would like to put in the space with the particular products that we're recommending for the space. And different clients want different levels of sort of rendering for that portion of the process. So some people want to see like the actual thing like rendered into their room, which is like a pretty expensive thing to do. Some people are fine with seeing like a floor plan with product sort of like listed on the side with images of it and whatnot. So it's kind of up to the client as to how much, you know, they're able to visualize without being shown the actual rendering of the the product in the space. And then from there, it's just, going back and forth about specific items that they like or don't like, and then, you know, ordering and placing everything. And then I'm kind of like known for, for styling. So there's always that portion of it where you're going in after everything's been delivered and bringing a ton of accessories and just sort of like finishing out so that it looks like, like a nice natural eclectic finished space. What's your favorite part? (sighs) Lately, my favorite part has actually been when like renovation when renovation is involved and it's done. I just did my parents' kitchen. Like it was so fun when it was finally like the cabinets and the appliances and and fixtures are all in. Like the final moment where you're like, everything has just been freshly painted and installed is so satisfying to see as a designer. And I think that because I've been doing more and more you know, I started obviously by doing more furnishing and then over time you get to do more and more sort of construction-based design projects. So the construction is just more exciting for me. I was just thinking about that because I was thinking like nobody, like when you work for yourself, nobody gives you a high five or says like, great job. And like, it is kind of like when you do something like, you know, move a wall and renovate and it's freshly painted and the cabinets are there, you can look at it and be like, wow, I did that. Like I made that happen. And you give yourself like a little self high five. And I feel like it it would be nice if like we had people that constantly told us like, as we're going along, we're doing a good job. (laughs) Because there's no one there to do that when you're self employed. You know, there's a lot of positive sides to working for yourself. One of the biggest positives is that you get to control your own time, get to control your own calendar. No one else is telling you what you can and cannot do. The downside is that everything is a question mark and there is no one to tell you what your assignment is, whether or not you did it right, 
like there's just so many like questions that you're the only person who can answer them and yeah decision fatigue is really frustrating too because you just have to like you are the only person to make all of the decisions and you have nobody to be like hey what do you think <laughs> you know right it's right. crazy so you mentioned writing a fiction or nonfiction book, and you also do a lot of Instagram stories and share a lot of your personal life and just general day to day. So is that kind of how you feel like you're satisfying or could be satisfying your creative urges? Because you talked about, you know, sometimes you don't think about anything because you're just trying to get work to pay the bills. But what about your own personal satisfaction or creativity? Different projects allow me to express, I think, facets of my creative desire. But usually if a client is involved, there's something mitigated about it by the fact that you're getting approval from somebody else that usually takes it away slightly from something that is fully creatively satisfying. One great exception, though, is I did like a project with Orchard Supply Home where I had to like basically like create a craft out of things that I found in the hardware store, which is something that I like love to do anyway. And I really like took tons of time on this project and, you know, for the amount of money that I was making on it, I probably like spent way too much time on it, but because I was so satisfied by what I was doing, I basically took like two days to make this like DIY wall hanging. But Every once in a while, you get to do something for work that really speaks to the innate joys of, you know, making things on your own or just expressing yourself creatively. But it isn't it isn't always it's kind of like every once in a while projects like that come along. But I mean, I don't think that can be expected. It is a job, you know. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about your personal life, maybe get into some other stuff. So everybody feels stuck or defeated or deflated at times. And you've really been very public about some of the times in your life that have been frustrating or some of the issues that you've gone through and sharing that. And I'm sure that you've, like you said, you really want to help people feel like, you know, they're not alone. So what's an example of like a time when you had to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and just get back into action? Like, maybe how you faced adversity or overcame a challenge or something like that? Well, I mean, I think last year is just a great example of that. So like end of 2016, beginning of 2017 were a hard time for me. My boyfriend that I was very much in love with that I did this whole like home renovation with that I like created my dream home with basically like dumped me out of nowhere. And then very soon after that, I lost the job that was supporting me. So not only did I have to move and sort of figure out finances on my own, I also lost my income stream at the exact same time. And I was pretty open about that. I think that the reason that I'm able to be open is that, you know, I'm like a self-deprecating person, but I think underneath it all, I actually do have a certain level of like self-confidence about myself. I know that I have been born with an, an enormous amount of privilege and that with that, I think comes a responsibility to try to help other people. And so when I experience things like that, I like to share them. So I was very open about how, you know, like hurt and upset and lonely I was about my breakup and how scared and nervous I was about losing a job and being really financially stressed out. And I think the reason that that is important to me is that we are dealing in mediums that are toxic to people. Social media is harmful. It's basically making everybody feel terribly about themselves. And if we have the tools to remedy that, I think that it's on us to do that. So I try not to be like too negative because I don't want people to just think I'm complaining all the time. It's hard to find that balance. But when something that is less than perfect happens to me, I like to be honest about it so that hopefully if somebody else is experiencing something similar, they feel just a little bit better about the fact that they're not alone because they've been, they see it reflected. Did you find anything 
healing to yourself in that process? I mean, was it was it mutually beneficial to be so transparent with the public? I would really like to say that it was, but it wasn't. Okay. It was painful. It was uncomfortable. I think it was the right thing to do. But generally speaking, expressing your vulnerability makes you feel vulnerable. It doesn't always make you feel like, oh, wow, that was so cathartic. Sometimes it just makes you feel like, oh, I'm saying this thing. So this thing is true. I don't know that it is always like a therapeutic experience to express sadness or express vulnerability online. I think that it can be. But it, it wasn't for you in this particular case. How did you I don't get yourself back to feeling good? Well, I think that it's time, you know, like that's the last thing that you want to hear if you're going through a painful experience where you've lost somebody or where you've lost a job. But it is time. It's just yeah. sort of like working through it and giving yourself the time to like, I'm not a fake person, so I don't pretend that everything is fine if it isn't. And I think that that is helpful. Like just being like, no, this sucks. Mm hmm is like a fine way to approach things sometimes because like generally speaking, I have like a really nice life. So if I'm, you know, not allowing the low parts to sort of like flow through me, I think that they will stick around longer than maybe necessary. That makes a lot of sense. And even if putting your vulnerability out there just makes you feel more vulnerable, somehow like bottling it up and then presenting a false image of yourself might even cause more damage. Like just pretending to be something you're not during. Mm -hmm. Do you think? I also just think, well, for me, it's like, there's something that's such a disservice about the false, the, the pretending that things are perfect when they're not just because there are so many people that are going through painful experiences that feels so much more alone when you're like, here I am holding a balloon and drinking a latte. Like, okay, cool. Good for you. But, you know, like, I think that people being emotionally real with each other is ultimately like a lot more valuable than this whole sort of like system of false happiness. That's just actually oppressing everybody else and making everybody feel depressed. <laughs> Did you have a pretty good support system IRL? Like, were you taking uh, care of yourself in that way as well? Yes. I mean, yes, I think so. That sounds you know, qualified. People, <laughs> people aren't always as, people don't always know what to do when other people are depressed. And I don't really know what people could have done that was different. Mm -hmm. So I guess the, the big question now is, do you feel a sense of the sort of strength and fortitude yet I know sometimes it takes a while and you have to process things and it you know you said time and I totally agree with that but eventually you start getting your strength back and you get to a place of understanding that those lessons and challenges made you stronger are you, mm -hmm. are you there yet yeah I mean I definitely feel like that I okay. feel that I have somehow gotten to a place of incredible self-confidence and I'm like wait is this like a phase like what's going on I've never <laughs> felt this confident in myself before but I think that when you have things that are you know two different kinds of forms of security like you know the reassurance of an employer saying you are worthy of employment and the reassurance of a partner saying you are worthy of love and you have both of those taken away from you clearly like there's going to be a period of time after that that you feel the lack the lack and the loss of those things and so like once that heals over and you're able to fill that void based on your own actions and your own psychology it is a really satisfying experience to be able to be like cool I actually feel really great about myself and it isn't contingent on the permission of anybody else mm -hmm. so I definitely have that feeling now and it is a great feeling it's a little bit of a scary feeling because you're like oh, I don't need anybody else <laughs> <laughs> at least no one can take it away yeah so on to another question um I'm wondering if you can share with us like who do you look up to and why do you have a hero or a mentor or someone a spiritual guide I mean somebody who helps you figure out how to live life 
Hmm, that is such a great question. I mean, there's different people that you look up to for completely different reasons. Uh-huh. For like business prowess, I probably look to like, you know, like the entrepreneurial spirit of like Martha Stewart for the intellectual and emotional sharing ability. I would look up to somebody like Joan Didion or just somebody who's an incredible communicator and writer. Lately, I've been getting a lot of inspiration from my parents because I've been spending a lot of time with them. They're great inspirations in terms of people who are kind of always doing the right thing for the environment and for their community. And it's always really inspiring to visit them because it makes me feel like I'm a garbage person. Cause they're like, we like compost everything. And like every single thing, like if you go to their house, their trash can is like microscopic and like their compost is huge and they're like recycling is huge. They're just like such low waste people. And they've always been so concerned with what, the right thing for the community to do is so I find that really inspiring because I think I've been so in like my own mode of like oh I'm like trying to succeed and trying to like get ahead that you forget about just your responsibility to your community and to your fellow people so that's always sort of like forefront for them which is nice to see. Yeah, that's a nice rounding. And it's your parents too. So like that's your stock. That's what you're from. So <laughs> it's got to be grounding and very familiar at the same time. Looking towards the future, what's something that you hold out as like a a personal goal, a dream, a wish? It doesn't have to be professional, but it could be. It could be a vacation or you might want to learn to sail a boat. I don't know. What would fulfill your life in some way? I have like a million different goals. Like my goal number one right now is like I'm doing this pilot. I want this pilot to turn into a TV show. It's such a great idea. Basically, every week we take somebody who's been recently dumped and give them an amazing home makeover to make them feel better. And it's very funny. And it's all about just like the idea of building up a person and making them feel great about themselves through the power of design, which is essentially like what my whole book is about and what I, you know, really believe in terms of like how powerful interior design can be. So that would be goal A. Goal B is like, I really want a house to design and renovate for myself that I've purchased myself that reflects my design style that can sort of be like a showpiece for me like what would you do if it was just you and you got to do you know whatever you want without anybody else's restrictions so I'm trying to figure out how to make that happen at some point awesome but we live in California which is the worst place in the world to live if you want to buy a house I know so terrible just like um Kylie Jenner wants to give me like one of her billion dollars or something. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, I hope you're able to accomplish those goals because that sounds awesome. Yeah, me too. (laughs) What about anything you have coming up in the near future that you would want our listeners to know about? I would just say like, keep an eye out for the various little web series projects that I'm doing that are sort of going to be popping up. Keep an eye out for my parents' very exciting kitchen renovation reveal, which I'm so stoked to share with everybody, but I have to kind of sit on for press reasons, but that should be coming out soon. And obviously, if you have not purchased my book, get it together. Buy my book, get it together. (laughs) Awesome. So where can our listeners find you on social media? I am at Mr. Orlando Soria on Twitter and Instagram. And then, and you also have a website and a blog. Yes. My blog is homemaker.com and it has two M's like the French word for man. So it's ummaker.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. It's been great. Thanks, Orlando. Yeah, thanks. thanks for having me. That was fun. It's such a modern story. His. I really loved hearing about growing up in Yosemite National Park. I, mean, I can't even imagine having a bedroom that looked out over the falls. 
it must be so strange to like live in a town that people like go to visit (laughs) you know yeah i mean that's that's one thing that we i feel like we should have talked to him about is like what was how did he interface with the tourists yeah i don't know was that part of his existence did he you know hate the tourists did he avoid did them at all like costs creep, it, creep around his neighborhood yeah <laughs> was, was it like really fun when they'd all come in in the summertime and he'd make like new friends every year and then they'd go away i don't know yeah like at the shore yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like your summer friends yeah, yeah totally i wonder i don't know yeah but it, i think he's right though that you never really appreciate it until you've left oh absolutely there's no way i could have appreciated my hometown kid. yeah until <laughs> And, and yeah. all it's like complexity until I got out of there. I really loved hearing about his his parents too. They sound like really solid people. Yeah, and very supportive. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But I, I do agree with you, and you know that the story is really interesting and probably more common now you know blogging and social media and all of these new careers that didn't exist you know even 10 years ago so I kind of relate to him in that sense because I went to school and I was like what <laughs> like and then I was graduated and I was like okay I'm supposed to get these jobs and then you just meander until you find the thing that you want to do and somehow all the stuff you did before really helps you with this new thing that you found that you want to do yeah and and i think there's never been or at least that i can remember there's never been such a distinct disconnect between like going to school and then coming out of school and becoming a blogger and a social media influencer because those were things that weren't even on the radar when he was in school Mm -hmm. yeah how would you ever even know right yeah but I mean when I think about it in my in my lifetime like it totally makes sense because like I was the editor of the literary magazine in high school and in college and like I always wrote and so like the whole writing thing was always a, a thing that I did in my whole life and I never thought like oh you know maybe I could have my own thing where I write myself you know creatively Mm. and then Mm -hmm. the internet happened and then blogging happened and I was like holy shit (laughs) (laughs) guess what I'm doing and then I was like oh I can make money off of this thing this is amazing yeah (laughs) it does put an enormous amount of pressure on you though because you are entirely now responsible for your your income and Mm -hmm. it made a, a lot more freelancers I think or, or entrepreneurs, however you want to look at it, self-employed people, mm-hmm. where it used to, the only way you could, you used to be able to set your parents' mind at ease was to get a good job at a good company. But mm-hmm. even that's not secure at all. Nobody retires from places that they worked no. at their whole life anymore because no. so many of those companies get rid of the older people as soon as they become too expensive. And so, like, there is no security even in the traditionally more secure routes. Yeah, and I I appreciated that he talked a lot about the frustrations and the challenges of being both the business owner and the creative and the decision maker and all of the other things that you have to do. And I also appreciate that he's been doing this for a while now and he still doesn't really know how to run his business properly or be organized for those kinds of things. And a lot of creative people are like that. Man, I don't think anybody really... I mean, if we talk to some of the older people who've been at this for a really, really long time and have very successful studios, I think what we'd find is that they've surrounded themselves with good people who can help run the business as well. Yeah, sometimes it's just a matter of finding somebody to help you do those things because maybe it's your energy and your brain is better left to focus on the things that you're really good at and then you can hire out like the crap like the accounting or whatever it is that you you need somebody to help you with but not everybody can do that sometimes it's just not financially viable no i know and i always feel like you have such a head start if you're um if you're both invested like remember daniel liebeskind was telling us that his wife is a very big part of running the studio mm-hmm. and she didn't start off with that intention like they they formed a partnership when he got one of his first big projects but having those complementary skill sets and a mutual 
even investment in the outcome. <laughs> Seems right. like such a great combination. <laughs> yeah, just finding somebody else to to work with that has the strengths that you don't have and vice versa. Yeah, and who, who maybe doesn't even cost a salary to start, but they've Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they're equally invested in you making Just enough money for both of work. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, I can appreciate how destabilizing and traumatic it must have been to have a relationship collapse and lose a job at the same time and move. They say yeah. you shouldn't get divorced, have a death in the family, or move. Like, those are all three, some of the most stressful things you can go through. And you should, if, if at all possible, you should try not to do more than one of those in a year. Thank goodness he didn't have a death in the family, but he lost a relationship, a job, and had to move. Yeah, and I love that he shared it with people, and he was honest about it, and it made him feel vulnerable, and it didn't really help him therapeutically, but he still did it, and that's super brave. It's brave, and I think it is also important to set an example that, like, fakery isn't the way to go on social media. It is, I mean, the more fake people are, the more toxic it becomes, so the more real you can be. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. there's, there's a place for aspirational and inspirational stuff, but then there is a place for, like, this is my real life, and sometimes it's hard, and here's the challenges of, of being human. People like that. The challenges of being human. Jamie... It's so challenging. I know. <laughs> so if anybody out there is dealing with some of that terrible stuff, you can buy Orlando's book because there's a chapter, How to Deal with a Soul-Sucking Breakup, and a chapter on what to do when you've been laid off and your life is ruined forever. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly his life wasn't That's ruined great. forever. That's nice. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to cleverpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Orlando's work. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you and we appreciate all of your comments. This episode of Clever was produced by 2VDE Media and edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. 